So we're in the middle of, of or sort of, I guess, the turning point, if you will, of Esther. Esther's about six, uh, ten chapters. Last chapter is super short, so we're actually more than halfway through the narrative, uh, and the story is starting to pick up a lot of steam as we roll into uh, Esther chapter six. If you remember from last week, last week is when Esther invites the king and Haman to come to a banquet. They both come, and she tells the king, will you guys come tomorrow also to a banquet? And if you'll come then, I'll actually share with you what my real request is. Uh, and so Haman's been invited to come back with the king, King Xerxes, or Asuras here, which is King Xerxes. They're supposed to come back the next day. Then on the, his way home, Haman sees Mordecai, who is the uh, uncle slash surrogate father of Esther. Morde- Haman doesn't know this about Mordecai. He can't stand Mordecai. And because he can't stand Mordecai, he can't stand all the Jews because Mordecai is a Jew and he wants Mordecai and his people to pay because Mordecai will not bow to him. Mordecai will not show him the honor. He is sure that he is due. And at the end of that chapter, uh, Haman walks away that day with a plan from his wife and friends that he should build a really tall set of gallows and he should see if the king will have Mordecai hanged on it the next day. Then he can go to the second banquet sort of free to enjoy himself. So that's where we are in the story. So... Esther's had party number one, Haman's angry, but he's got a plan. That very night, we come into verse one of chapter six. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asuras to kill him. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows uh, that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman's here, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. The king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man with whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. That is a bad four-hour span, give or take, for Haman. Things have taken in quite a turn for that guy. So I was studying this passage, I was reminded of Alanis Morissette's song in the 90s. I used to know all the words, um, and since then, I have stopped trying to know all the words uh, to her song, Ironic. 
Uh, if you guys remember this song, if you were alive, uh, when this song came out, I'll read a few of the lyrics for you. <clears throat> she says, an old man turned 98, he won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon two minutes too late. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. Who would have thought it figures? So when this song came out, there was this huge splash. A lot of us loved the song. And then there were some people who really understood what the word irony means. And they also were pretty upset with the song because apparently none of the ironies are actually ironies. I, did not, I, don't, I still don't understand that. And yet they weren't. So then, and I, I, this has been 20 years, uh, Alanis Morissette, along with James Corden, who, run, who has an, a late night show, they rewrote the lyrics so they're a little more updated for us. And so now it says this, it's like you're first class on a Southwest plane. Then you realize that every seat is the same. It's like Netflix, but you own DVDs. It's a free ride, but your Uber's down the street. It's singing, singing ironic, but there are no ironies. And who would have thought it figures? So what I, my takeaway from this, as I was listening to the song written uh, originally, revisiting that song, and then hearing the one written with James Corden, is I should never use the word ironic because I do not know how to use it appropriately. So I'm just not going to do that anymore. But one thing I will say is if... Alanis Morissette was familiar with Esther chapter 6, 20 years ago she would have said, isn't that ironic? And now she wouldn't because she knows that that's not how you use ironies. She'd say something else. But in that 20-year-old sort of song lyric way, it's a little too ironic for Haman as we meet him in this particular passage. I mean, we look at this, that God's timing here. And Alanis may have misused the term, but what she is highlighting is illustrated in the life of Haman, and it's something that we all wrestle with. Those of us who are uh, members of God's family, we wrestle with trusting God and his timing, but for those who don't know God, they struggle with, are things really coincidental, or, or is there something else going on here? Because sometimes things seem a little too ironic to say that that's coincidence, and that's the case with Haman this morning. And as we consider this this morning, what I want us to do is we're going to look at this chapter and we're primarily going to be talking about God's providence as it relates to coincidences and how people of God, who understand God's providence, there are no coincidences. And because of that, we can have such comfort and such freedom in our lives. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So jumping into the text, I just want to run through it really quickly and I just want you to see all the coincidences, which really is jump off the page at you as you're reading this text. I mean, here we are, the night after the party, before the next party, the king can't sleep. And the king can't sleep, and so instead of bringing in some other type of distraction, he brings in a book full of all the chronicles of his kingdom and all the things that he's done as king, which he's been king for you know, close to a decade now. So there's a lot of things that have been written down. And it just so happens tonight that the account of Mordecai is the account that's written, to, written or read to him out of what was written. And that's the same Mordecai that he didn't honor when he first brought the, uh, the conspiracy to Esther. If you remember a few chapters ago, Mordecai hears about this conspiracy. He brings it to Esther. Esther brings it to the king in the name of Mordecai. The king is saved, but nothing's done to honor Mordecai in that moment. So now there's an there's a unrecognized Mordecai in the annals of the king's history on the night that he can't sleep which happens to turn into the morning that Haman's going to want to kill 
Mordecai. And so then we have that coincidence. And then on top of that, we have, you know, who happens to be the one person in the court when the king wants to think about what he should do for Mordecai? None other than Haman, who showed up there early to try and kill Mordecai, to have him killed. And so then, who is it that, that outlines how Mordecai should be celebrated? The man who wants to have him killed. And so Haman lands out this great celebrate me plan, and then he has to celebrate Haman. I mean, he has to celebrate Mordecai. And so we have Mordecai on the very morning when he was supposed to be hung is now being paraded around the city square on the king's horse, dressed in the king's clothes with the king's uh, his crown or one of his crowns on while his arch enemy Haman celebrates him in front of everybody. And you'll notice that on the, the morning, if, and we'll see this next week, but on the morning of the party when when Esther is going to say, please spare my people, the Jewish people, the king has just heard about a Jew that saved his life and has sent his prime minister to celebrate Mordecai the Jew on that morning. It's just, it's amazing. These coincidences, the way that they are lining up are helping us to understand that there's no way this is a coincidence. And you know who really gets that? His wife and his friends. They're like, ooh, Last night they said, oh, see if you can kill Mordecai. You'll be way happier when you go to the feast. He comes back, they're like, yeah, yeah, you're in trouble. Things are not looking good. That's essentially, they just changed the tune because they look at it and they're like, there's, there's something else going on here. There's no way you're going to win. And then before he can come up with another plan, because one thing we know about Haman and his wise men and his wife is given some time, they'll come up with a new plan. Before they can have another plan, while they're still lamenting how bad things are, the eunuchs show up and take him to the next party. And as we're going to see next week, it is now too late for Haman. There's nothing that he can do. So we have all these coincidences, and what I want you to see is this is the fabric of God's providence. This is the weaving of God's providence in the story. And what the author is doing is he wants the Jewish reader to see, you didn't understand what was happening. You didn't understand what's happening. You didn't understand what's happening. Now you're starting to get it. Now you can start to see what God is doing. It's starting to come into clarity for them. I love the way the New, the New Living Translation, I love the way that they translate the verse when, um, when the king asks about Haman. It says in verse 4, we, in the ESV, it says, And the king said, Who's in the court? And when the ESV says, Now Haman had just entered the court. But what the NLT does is they say, As it happened, as it happened, Haman was coming into the court. Because that's how it feels to us. It just so happened. Well, no, it didn't just so happen. And the NLT, the translators of the NLT, want us to sort of capture that feeling. Like there is no such thing as as it happened. As it happened as God ordained. That's how the world unfolds. That's how stories unfold. And so we have this story of the fact that there are no coincidences, that God is working his providence, and it's in the story of Haman, the king, and Mordecai before us this morning. But what, what we need to do now is like, all right, well, that's the series of coincidences that are not really coincidences. So what's the point that God is illustrating for his people? What is he driving home for us this morning and for his people and the original readers as well. Well, one thing I want us to highlight is what this story is not about. Sometimes we, read, we might be tempted to read this story and say, see, Mordecai got, Mordecai got passed over once, but he was patient, and God brought him his, his reward. That is not what this is about. 
That is not at all what this is about. This is not a passage about God's people being patient and God will make sure they're recognized in the end. I want you to think about the story of Stephen, the first martyr we meet in Acts. Do you remember how the story unfolds there? He preaches one of the most amazing sermons we have recorded in God's word. And at the end, he is stoned and killed. There's no recognition for him. There's death. Does that mean that God wasn't with him, that God wasn't faithful to him, that he wasn't really a child of God? No, that's not what it means. It means that in God's providence, he gave his life for the gospel. That is not what's happening to Mordecai. But what I want you to see is God is, God is not illustrating how he will make sure all of his children experience blessing in this world. He is illustrating that all of his children's enemies have no power. That's what he's illustrating. His power over all of our enemies, over all of what would cause us to fear. And so when we think about, I mean, think about Mordecai. If, if Mordecai knew that he was going to be recognized and the king had said, Mordecai, I want you to be recognized as the one whom the king favors. Do you think that he would have come up with the plan that, that Haman came up with? Now, Mordecai only wants one thing, for his people not to die. So I hope you understand, Mordecai is more than likely not super excited about the mourning that he just had. Because the king is recognizing him for saving his life, and in Mordecai's eyes, it got wasted on a trip around the square on a horse with a crown when all, he and all of his people are going to die in 10 months. This is not what Mordecai would have drawn up, but the point is not about Mordecai. Mordecai is just a supporting character. This is about God and Haman. This is about God, the one with real power and the enemy of God's people who thinks he has power and doesn't. That's what this story is about. And so when we think about this, this unfolding story in Esther chapter 6, it's a story that where God is telling us you can have freedom, you can have rest, you can have peace because whoever you thought had the power over you has no power. I have all the power. He wants his people to know that he's in control, that his plan is being executed, that every single detail is unfolding through his power, that there are no coincidences that nothing is happening outside of his providential will, that he is supremely powerful. It's an illustration, if you will, sometimes we, we would say, all right, well, I want to be confident that I know that the outcome is going to be good. And in a sense, being the children of God, we know that the outcome is going to be good, but it's in an ultimate sense, not in a temporal sense. We're like, well, I can have confidence in God's providence if I know that God's providence means that I'm going to be recognized in due time and that things will go well for me in this world. And there's no promise of that. But our confidence doesn't come from knowing that God, our, our confidence doesn't come from a providence that guarantees a certain outcome. Our confidence comes from the one whose providence it is, who's supremely powerful. It's never tied to the outcome. The outcome is sure. God is going to receive glory and we are going to be with him forever. That's guaranteed. The rest of it is his unfolding plan according to his purposes. And so for us, in the face of whatever our greatest fears are, we have to remember who it is that loves us and that he's the one who's powerfully in control. Who loves us? That he's in control. And then we can actually find rest. Then we can find peace. And so as we think about this, this morning, you know, we're talking about God's timing and coincidences and providence we have a story here about God's timing, or to put it more pointedly, you could say about God's providence over Haman for the good of God's people, which is to show God to be supremely 
powerful, and he does that through um, non-ironic coincidences. It's an illustration that, that God is absolutely in control because I want you to see God uses an illustration because Haman is one of those true one-size-fits-all illustrations. Every one of us has something or someone that we fear. Every one of us has someone or something that we can't control. Actually, everything we can't control, but things we're more aware of that we can't control. Every one of us has seasons in life and episodes in life and experiences in life that we don't understand. Haman is a perfect illustration that what you fear, what you can't control, what you don't understand has no power over you. Jesus is in control. God is in control. Everything is working according to his purposes. So when we think about God's providence, you and I are oftentimes, we are, we are letting whatever it is that we fear, whatever we don't understand, whatever we can't control, it is robbing us of any type of security. It's robbing us of our, of our peace. It's robbing us of rest. It's robbing us of legitimate sleep. It is taking that from us. And this is an illustration of God saying, call out whatever your Haman is and know that I have power over it. Whatever your enemy is, whoever your enemy is, whoever your great fear is, whoever you don't understand, I don't mean a person, I mean an experience. So for you and for me, who is it that we fear? What do we fear? Who do we fear? And how is that fear robbing us of rest, of security? God would have us label that just like Haman and know that he's in control, that he's in power. I mean, some people are afraid of institutions. Some people are afraid of people. Some people are afraid of tragedy. Some people are afraid of loss. Like there's all kinds of things you can be afraid of. But for you and me, like what are the things that we fear? What are the things that we lose sleep over at night? I think you could really summarize a lot of us, we struggle with fears about work and fears about people. Fears about work and fears about relationships. We fear that my job's not going to be secure or my, my job's not going to cover what the, the needs that I have or, or the economy's going to change or the market's going to change. I know some of you run your own businesses. That is terrifying. Every month, you're reminded there is something you could be very fearful of if you wanted to let yourself be ruled by that. It weighs on you. So when we think about whether or not we'll have enough, we'll be able to provide, whether or not we'll be able to provide for our own family, much less other people's families, that fear God would have you say and understand that fear is robbing you of the security and of the rest that he has guaranteed you, that he has purchased for you, that he's the God over, all, over your job, over your business, over your industry. He's the job over your cash flow. He's the job over your employees. He's the job over your new hire. He's the job over the hire that you had to let go. He's the God over all of it. None of those coincidences should rob you of, fee, of sleep. None of those details should rob you of rest because God has got over all of it. No one should go to bed, of the followers of Jesus, we should not go to bed in angst and tied up in knots because we don't know how things are gonna play out. We don't know how things are gonna play out, but we know the one who controls it. We know the one in power. So we rest because we know him. Or maybe it's, maybe it's that idea of control, who I can't control. I'm a, Hillary and I joke about the fact that we, are, we work really well as a couple because we both have control issues, and that means we understand each other, you know? I don't know if that's how it works in your marriage, but it works for us, so that's fine. But I actually, as I thought about it this week, like, we all have control issues. 
There, we all have at least some areas. It just happens to be for me and Hillary, it's all areas. But for some of you, it's only a few areas where you struggle with not being in control. But all of us struggle with that. So I would, I would ask you, like, what do you have a death grip on? Whatever you have a death grip on, trying to control it, it is robbing you of sleep. It is robbing you of rest. It is robbing you of peace. It is like a Haman. And you need to know that God is in control. You can release that death grip. And you can rest. Primarily what I thought of this week is parents, we've got a stranglehold on our children because we're so afraid. God would have us sleep well tonight. He works all things for the good of those who love him, including the lives and the security and the future for our children. We just don't believe him. But he does. Let's give our kids to him and sleep. And then last, what I don't understand, who I don't understand, when life just doesn't make any sense. Amos Lee has a new album coming out at the end of this month, and he has uh, his, the first single that came out on that album. It's called No More Darkness, No More Light. And it was a song written after the Florida shootings, uh, the school shooting in Florida back in February. And it's, it talks about hopelessness, and it's a, it's a somewhat hopeful song without that hope being grounded in anything real. Just a hope that maybe things aren't going to continue to be this way. I want you and I to know when we don't understand what's going on, we do have real hope. Because we trust the one who's in control even when we don't have a clue why he's doing what he's doing or what he's hoping to accomplish through it. Because ultimately we know he accomplishes his glory, which is for our good. So we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to strive to be in control. When we don't understand, we can still go to sleep. We can still rest because he is no less in control. And so this morning, we're going to come to the the table and enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And I just want to remind you of another little piece of God's story that is full of coincidences. And those are divinely providential coincidences. When Jesus, when he sent his disciples, when he was going into Jerusalem, he said, there's going to be a donkey waiting for me. And you just tell them that the Lord needs it. They show up. There's a donkey. The Lord needs it. Jesus comes in on a donkey. He tells them there's going to be a room that's prepared for us. Where does he go? He goes to a room that's prepared for them. He dips his hand into the bowl at the same time that the one who will betray him puts his hand into the bowl. He goes with some of his disciples or with most of his disciples to a garden where he knows he'll be found. He tells his disciples that it's time as they come to take him before a mock tribunal. There's a Roman governor who would rather let a murderer go free, than to, who, who thinks that the people would rather have a murderer pay the price than an innocent man. But when it comes to it, that Roman governor says, no, justice doesn't matter. I'm going to wash my hands of it. And this murderer will go free and this innocent man will die. And when Jesus is on the cross and the veil is torn in two and darkness covers the earth and he gives up his spirit for us, The darkest moment when it looks like evil has won is a series of non-coincidences in which Jesus fully paid and secured our salvation. There are no coincidences. God has demonstrated to us in his son that everything works out according to his plan and there is nothing better than his plan. Our challenge is to trust and to rest in him. Not to figure out the plan, not to try to discern it, not to evaluate it, but to know that he gave his own son for us. He wants what's best for us.
we can rest in his plan for us. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for a chance to gather and, and to think on these things this morning. I thank you for this story in Esther. I thank you for the way that Haman had a plan and that plan meant nothing. That your plan, your plan accomplished your purposes. We thank you the way that we can look and see in the story of Haman, how all those coincidences confirm that you are actually the one always and forever in power, always and forever in control. Lord, we, we confess to you this morning the things that we're holding on to tightly, the things that are robbing us of sleep and of rest and of confidence. We ask that your spirit, even as we come to the table, being reminded of what you have given for us, that we will see the love you have for us and it will free us from our fears and our insecurities. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.